You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is uh, Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Lincoln Perry, who is a painter, sculptor, muralist, and author of most recently of this book called Seeing Like an Artist, What Artists Perceive in the Art of Others. Welcome, Lincoln. Thank you. So in this book, I think one of the main messages of the book is that as a practicing artist, you benefit from consuming the work of others, right? And you can become a better artist the more time you spend looking at the work of other artists. But also the corollary to that is that you become sort of a a better appreciator and consumer of art if you are a practicing artist, or at least you spend some time practicing. But it seems like these activities are frequently kept separate, right? Not only in the academy where we have different departments for the practice of art and the study of the history of art, but also, I mean, I think most people who go to museums and kind of look at the work in museums, they haven't spent any time trying to make art. And maybe this impedes their capacity to really appreciate it. So why is it that we, I guess, keep these things separate? I mean, should artists spend more time in museums? And should people who go to museums spend some time learning how to paint, at least in some very basic way? I think it's a waste if people don't. I have a friend who's a wonderful art historian, quite well known, and he's also a wonderful painter. And it seems to me that those two disciplines don't have to be separated, shouldn't be separated the way they are. It doesn't mean that people should bone up on an art, every art history book in sight before they go to a museum. In other words, I think that the work speaks for itself. And over time, the more time you get to spend with this art, or the more motivated you are to research what interests you. So say you go to a very large museum like the Louvre, and you go to that huge hall that has the Jericho's and the Delacroix's, and they knock you out, which they should. You could then read about the story of the Raft of the Medusa, which has been written about by any number of people eloquently. Julian Barnes wrote about it. And basically, the story, for me, is secondary. In other words, you you are motivated to read the story having been bowled over by the painting. In fact, one of my heroes was a relative now, obviously, very obscure art historian, well, the art critic, who also painted, by the way, named Roger de Peel, who in 1685 told the French Academy that, in his opinion, they were getting it backwards. They were reading paintings as if they were texts. And he said it was more like music. Paintings are more like music. They should wash over you. And if they pull you in and seduce you, you're motivated to read them at that point, to figure out their content, their narrative, who's who, the iconography. But if you start with that, it's usually fairly intimidating and off-putting somehow to think that it's a quiz. Who is this character? Well, it's Flora in, the say, a painting that everybody knows, Primavera by Botticelli. Yeah, it's Flora. And that might occur to you over time. But the thing that occurs to you first is you've gotten to Florence with great difficulty. You've gotten into the Uffizi with great difficulty. And you found space in front of Primavera with great difficulty. And you stand there. And over time, it's a huge painting. Over time, you might say, huh, I wonder who that character in the upper right is blowing on a woman with flowers coming out of her mouth. We don't know these things. We're not versed in myth. So it takes some study, but it's only tertiary. 
secondary or tertiary, it seems to me, in terms of appreciating a painting as music, as something sensual, as something that only becomes intellectual over time. So, I mean, there's two ways that you can approach a work of art as an educated consumer. I mean, one is to understand the iconography, right? And to understand the history and the context. And then another is to understand the methods of composition and technique. And I think one of the points that you were making is that with art historians, they struggle with this. And sometimes they overemphasize the formal aspects of a work of art. And maybe other times they overemphasize the historical and the iconographic. I mean, I guess having a little bit of both is always a good thing, but I mean, is it important to have to strike a balance there? I mean, to cultivate both aspects of artistic appreciation? I think it is, but I think it depends on the kind of painting as well. I mean, in other words, people were first flummoxed by abstract art because they couldn't see a story and they didn't know how to make sense of this painting. Their formal structure, which is what we try to learn in school and what this book sort of addresses, it's not formalism per se, which got a very bad reputation by being over-formalized, but it is looking at structure. In other words, if you're a composer and you're studying how to write music, it helps, for instance, to read music, and it helps to read the scores of people you admire and you're going to learn from. Mozart obviously learned from Haydn and vice versa. It seems to me the structure Without the structure, a friend of mine said once that uh, if modern paintings were buildings, they would fall down. And what he was arguing for was understanding, for instance, there's a chapter in this book about one of the huge options in how to organize a painting is as a series of planes that move back in space, one overlapping another, like a card, a playing card on a table overlapping another. And that works you back into space. That's incredibly different than taking the cards and making a house of cards where they, each card is an axis into space that leads you in, like Rubens. I did a drawing of the Rubens raising of the cross. It's a huge tetrahedron, and the more you look at it, the more you realize he had an spatial idea initially that was metaphoric. It's aggressive, it's violent, and then the neighboring altarpiece is the deposition, and it's all planar. And it's tragically frontal, plane after plane after plane, all parallel to each other, as opposed to these wedge shapes, these axial movements that in his eye, I think, must have had a tragic connotation. Well, they both did, but a different kind of, one is very active, one is very static, but they have metaphoric implications. So, I mean, in a way, part of what you're saying is that, you know, we exaggerate the extent to which there are new things under the sun, right? So Clement Greenberg, famously said, you know, that modern art is all about the discovery of flatness and so forth. But you say that this is something that every painter knows about, right? You can't not know about it if you're a painter, right? Absolutely. As soon as you look at a piece of canvas, you realize you're painting on a flat surface. And in the Renaissance, there's a brilliant book by John White called Birth and Rebirth of Pictorial Space, which was a Bible for us in graduate school. And he talks about the Renaissance painters being, ab early Renaissance painters being absolutely aware partly because they were doing murals on walls, that it is a flat surface. And they accommodated and brilliantly, in some ways, hid the clues about perspective. They weren't trying to carve a huge hole in the wall. They were doing anything but. They were constantly grading the movement your eye goes steps back into space. And I think that Clement Greenberg was a little naive in thinking that somehow or other we'd come across this for the first time. And it's analogous to a lot of misconceptions we have about this kind of art that I'm talking about. For instance, it's funny. It's funny. It's humorous. There are very strangely odd things to be found out there that speak to me. I know we're 
there are art historians who say we all this art is inaccessible to us because we can only project our own lives onto it. I don't agree with that. I think that if you see a misericorde, one of these chairs in a cathedral, and you flip it up and there's somebody blowing air out of his butt, that's funny. And it's also a comment on the authority of the church. And also, I talk a fair amount about a Rubens tapestry, so painting for a tapestry. And you see this image of a, a, a narrative, and then you realize it itself is a tapestry being held up by little putti who are all but grinning at you and smiling and saying, this is an illusion, dummy. I mean, in other words, they were aware of what they, they were totally aware of what they were doing. And Greenberg sometimes seemed to think that if they had had a Nikon camera, you wouldn't have to have had the Renaissance. I mean, that basically that's all they were aspiring to was photographic realism. That's absolutely ridiculous, in my opinion. Well, I should mention that for those of you who are thinking about buying the book, that inside the book, there are reproductions of the works that you discussed that you made, right? You would go to the museums and you would sit there and draw what you saw. But on your website, you have the photographic reproduction. So I highly recommend everybody go there. And I didn't just realize this until after I read the book. But, you know, we do go to museums and we see people in there, artists who are attempting to reproduce what they see. And I think the preliminary title of this book was Stealing from Museums. And you spent a lot of time talking about your life as a museum goer. And certainly I think the way in which you experience museums is very different from the typical museum goer. You really do spend a lot of time in the museums and you uh, go to great lengths to find the art in situ. So maybe we can talk a bit about what is it about seeing work in the flesh on site that is different from looking at reproductions? Because if we do have this Nikon photograph of a painting, shouldn't that be sufficient if that's what the painters are trying to do? Well, you had to be there, as I think one of the titles of one of the chapters. It's especially true of sculpture. In other words, it's obvious that you need to rotate around, move all the way around a sculpture to experience it. It's an object in the world, and no matter how many photographs you have, the tactility and the presence of that space-occupying object will never come across in reproductions. It's getting harder, I admit. It was cheaper, for one thing, when I was younger, and I had a VW van, and I drove around every place I could to see the art, and I had time. Anyway, I, I'll getting sidetracked from what you asked. There's an homogenization that goes on in these dark rooms we sit in in art history classes. Everything's the same size. So you can have a miniature by Hilliard, and you can have a mural the size of a wall, and they somehow or other become analogous. And to some extent, that's not the end of the world, because sometimes the structure of a Hilliard English miniature would be perfectly happy being blown up to life size. Or a Rembrandt etching, a tiny little etching could be a plan for a huge mural, because he was thinking that way. So to some extent, I'm not going to be that hard on it. But getting there is also half the fun. I mean, I, I loved going to, it's not there anymore, but there was a Piero della Francesca in a graveyard in Italy. And getting there was difficult. There was no GPS. This was quite a while ago. Well, you give her a thousand lira, two thousand lira. And she would open the doors of this secluded spot in the woods. And you would see this piero, it, the way it was intended. It's a misericord. It's to reassure the viewers or the people coming to this thing. And it was very reassuring to me because it wasn't just something on a white wall in a museum. It was something in a context of bucolic woods I felt like I was a pilgrim the way someone was in 14 
40 or whenever this thing was put up. Being there is not just being in museums and, for me anyway, is not just being in museums and seeing things, because there's an homogenization once you put things on the wall, too. I mean, in some ways, we think that every painting was intended to be on a white wall. Well, no, most paintings were intended to be in a context of a house or a palace. So, yes, getting there is important, but as aids the memoir, you can do a little drawings, which imprint these things more on your brain, or you can take a photograph and look at it to evoke the experience. We just got back from London, and I spent seven days in all the museums I could fit in. And I must admit, I took a million pictures. And those will be insufficient, but there as more aids to memory than in some way a substitution for, there's no substitution for being in front of a painting, really. These were old friends, these huge Tintorettos, or a huge uh, Veronese, a huge Canaletto, the Parthenon, the Elgin Marbles. They have a presence that you can't communicate, I think, ever by images alone. Now, you're married to a writer, and we all know that writers will talk about their reader, right? So when they're writing, they sort of have a, an ideal reader in mind. And visual artists presumably also have a viewer or a reader in mind. And part of it's about the situation that they're in, right? They expect to be experiencing this work in a specific place or location, if it's, a, say, a mural or a fresco. But what does it mean to think about the reader? I mean, do, do you imagine somebody coming to the work with a set of pre-existing interpretive schema? Or, I mean, when you are creating a work of art, do you imagine that the viewer is someone like yourself? I've seen your murals at Cabell Hall. And, and I think, you know, most people who see them kind of just, you know, walk past them, maybe give them a few seconds of a glance. Others will spend time actually looking at each of the panels. You did your work in St. Louis, right? And it's an allegory that references Homer. What percentage of the people who go to work in the office have even know who Homer is, right? Is it important that the reader have some pre-existing capacity to understand what you're doing? Or do you just kind of say, well, there is going to be a few people that I'm ultimately going to be able to reach and that's enough? I think that more the latter. And once think something's out of your studio or on the wall, it's out of your control anyway. You create something that you hope will speak to some people. A lot of the paintings I've done are based on myths and no one, well, not no one, but very few people are immersed in myth the way the viewer in the Renaissance would have been. And even then, when we say the Renaissance, we're talking about the educated few. But if you think about the peasants who came into the church and saw images of hell, say, that was a pretty powerful message without any text, without any literacy. So on some level, you're hoping that you'll have an audience that responds in different ways. One of my teachers, much beloved, Gabriel Latterman, said he wanted his paintings to be understood by his mother, who did not paint and who didn't really know what he knew, which was phenomenal. But he wanted there to be levels of appreciation or comprehension, and he couldn't control how much the audience knew coming in. He would hope endlessly for a more educated audience, but he knew that basically no one would know what he knew. He knew more than I do. He was brilliant. And I don't paint the way I paint to make it more accessible. I paint the way I paint because I can't do anything else. It's what comes out. So we had dinner last night with some Chinese friends who are painters, and we were talking about the differences between pictorial space in the West and the East. And it was interesting. And I said, yeah, but when you get in front of the canvas, what comes out comes out. 
In other words, you can have lots of theories, you can have lots of ideas. There's that wonderful quote where Degas said to his friend Mallarmé, Monsieur Mallarmé, I'm writing poems, I have some good ideas for poems. And Mallarmé said, but Monsieur Degas, poems are made with words, not ideas. And it's analogous to painting. Paintings are made of paint. They're not made of ideas. Well, yeah. I mean, you said when you experience a painting, you know, look at the painting first and then look at the sign if you have to. But I think there are some artists that kind of flip that around, right? And say, you know, look at the sign first and then look at the work of art, right? Yeah. I think that there are pieces, let's call them, that are illustrations of the text. In other words, rather than clarifying something that might have been mysterious, which can work for labels. Sometimes if you don't know what's going on in a painting, you look at the label and it helps somewhat. But if the card is before the horse, it seems to me that you're using a different part of your brain. You're not seeing visual music, you're reading a text visually. And it's an illustration for an idea as opposed to an embodied structural idea, finding form in sculpture or in painting. Now, at the beginning of the book, you describe an experience that you had when you were young. I guess it was you when you were still an undergraduate at Columbia where you went to the Frick and you saw Bellini's St. Francis. Now, you were not a religious person at the time, and nor are you now, but still this had a profound impact on you. I mean, I can't imagine that Bellini would have, while painting this, ever thought that it would be viewed by people who weren't Christians, right? Because, you know, everyone was a Christian. Everyone he knew and could imagine ever seeing this would be Christian. And yet it still had a powerful impact on you. And so... When Bellini paints this, I mean, is it because he knows that what's human is human and you don't need to be a Christian for you to understand what is in that image? I would go with that interpretation. It seems to me there are people who say we should really think twice about saying we can do art history about art that is inaccessible to us because of its age, because, say, Romanesque art is immersed in a culture of religiosity so deep and so given that we'll never really comprehend it the way they did. But we can comprehend it the way we do. And I'm a humanist, I guess that's an out-of-fashion term, enough to think that somehow or other humans can speak to each other across these huge temporal and spatial gaps. When I went to London and I went in to see the Eldergan marbles, I just took my breath away how present they were. And Picasso said that too. Greek art is more alive now than it ever was. It's alive in the moment, even though it's thousands of years old, because they were humans. Granted, they had different assumptions, lots of different takes on the world. They believed in multiple gods. They were very hard on women. They were constantly at war. Well, we are too. But one way or another, all that drop doesn't exactly drop away. But through that temporal gap, it seems to me that the stuff, the stuff, these amazing sculptures, these metopes and friezes and this amazing work basically speaks to me anyway in the moment. And it did to other people. I could see other people taking this in. And I was doing drawings from one of the friezes and people kept looking over my shoulder and I had a feeling that they thought the drawing that I was doing might tell them more about what they were seeing. And I hope that's the case with this book. It seems to have sold in China, and I'm interested to see how Chinese audiences, whether they'll feel that somehow or other they've had access, it's given them some access to Western art that some art history might not have given. In other words, talking about what they're looking at, how it's structured, introducing them to Western space, to Western space making. 
not to sound like a formalist, because I assume they'll also think who in the world is having their breasts cut off in this painting and why, which is horrifying. But at the same time, a painter, not to sound heartless, but a painter will see that in that choice of location or that choice of how you're moved through the space is half the story, is half what the artist is trying to get across. Yeah, I think it was Picasso. He said, there's no past or future in art, right? And I think there's another quote that you said, a painting is not dead if you are sort of a participant and not a viewer. What is the distinction between, say, a participant as opposed to a viewer when one encounters a work of art? Well, viewer sounds a little distancing. In other words, I can view a train wreck and then I can be in the train wreck. Viewing is a distancing implication. I enjoy implicating or trying to implicate the viewer. There are any number of ways you can do that. You can pull them in. Say you have a tiny etching. Say you're Goya and you have a tiny etching of the disasters of war. And you're holding it in your hand and you're all of a sudden pulled into these horrors that are going on again. It's in the present. It's in your present. And you are participating, implicated. You have to wonder, would I have been capable of this behavior? A viewer somehow or other does potentially walk through a space and not have an emotional reaction. But somehow or other, a participant will be answerable and also find an enjoyment. And to be a participant, I mean, is it partially about kind of empathizing with the artist themselves? I mean, thinking about what are the decisions that the artist made? And I mean, I remember when I was taking an art history class, my professor told me to mimic the posture and the gesture of the folks in the painting. And this would help you to understand the painting better. But do you also then have to say, well, okay, why did the artist make this decision? I mean, every single square inch of a painting is a product of a decision, right? And so does attempting to understand those decisions, does that distance you from the work or does that kind of help you to inhabit and participate in the work? That's a good question. I, it made me think of Thoreau who said apparently, I was seeing nature more clearly until I learned the Latin names for what I was looking at. He felt that somehow or other he had been distanced. In general, I think that personality has been overstressed in how we think about art now. If we stress biography, if we get very involved in Van Gogh's tragic life, we stop seeing the paintings as what he wanted them to be, which are joyous celebrations. He basically said, I wish I were not crazy. I wish I didn't have this affliction. I would be more productive. I, would be, I wouldn't be different. I wouldn't be a different painter. You can't say, oh, that brushstroke is because he was insane. It's a waste of time, it, it seems to me, or it's misleading. It makes things biographical when, in fact, the work should speak for itself and stories speak for themselves. My paintings, I hope, speak for themselves. Our lives are not that interesting. All My wife and I, all we ever do is work. I mean, it's not as if this is referring to a life. If I paint a party scene, I did a sort of a bacchanal around a pool and people all of a sudden thought we had these huge pool parties. I've never had a pool party in my life. It was it was an invention. And it was an invention, perhaps, because we don't have pool parties. Maybe it was a fantasy of how life could be. But so what? There are strange biographical anomalies. For instance, George Latour is the guy that painted those incredibly quiet paintings of Christ with his hand in front of a candle. And that they're the most refined, meditative, the opposite of violence. And we know almost nothing about the painter, except that he was arrested six times for beating his servants almost to death. 
does that inform the paintings? Does it make him a hypocrite? You know, that Adam Gopnik wrote an article about Picasso, bad man, bad artist. And that's an equation that I think is ridiculous. I mean, and dangerous, actually. Because, yeah, Picasso had his faults. Absolutely. Look at the work. Don't see it biographically. Oh, this is because Marie-Thérèse was his girlfriend and that's why he painted this way. Eh, I mean, look at the work. And does it inform? And if you're a painter, can you steal from it? Or is it an exercise in voyeurism and, and thinking it's somehow rather, oh, this madman Van Gogh, how romantic that he cut his ear off and killed himself, perhaps. It seems to me very separate from the work and from the, literally doing the work in the studio or at the time of the computer. Yeah, it is very interesting, right? If we discovered, for instance, that a vaccine was invented by a, I don't know, by a Nazi or something, right? Like we wouldn't stop taking the vaccine, <laughs> right? I mean, right. but you know, when we find out that an artist was a murderer or an awful human being, it somehow taints the art, right? It can't help but taint it. Caravaggio is a great example. He murdered someone or he killed someone in a stupid tennis argument, but the powers that be, he had to get out of town for a while, but he was on his way back when he died, sadly, on a beach. It was like the Woody Allen joke about, you know, my grandfather thinks he lays golden eggs. And what do you do about that? Well, we need the eggs. I mean, we don't treat him. We need the eggs. Well, the buyers of Caravaggio's art, people who appreciated and knew how great he was, needed the art. And okay, so you killed somebody. Well, you've been out of town for eight, eight years. Come on back. We need the eggs. For instance, if we didn't know that Beethoven had gone deaf relatively young and thought about killing himself, would that change the music? It makes it bizarre that he was capable of doing what he did, but it doesn't, to me, change the music itself. It's biographical. Well, I think you quoted Matisse. He said artists should have their tongues cut out. He talked a lot for someone who thought, he know, who thought that. <laughs> Right. And so, you know, I'm, I'm interviewing you and you're an artist, but it does seem like artists are not the best people when it comes to explaining art, particularly their own art. Right. But we always are always asking them to explain their art, you know, whether they're writers or painters. I remember um, I saw Spike Lee's movie, Do the Right Thing. It was in 1989, I think. And I thought, oh, this is just a, this is a brilliant movie. This is a classic. And when he was interviewed and he described the movie, he, he just had a very kind of banal description of the movie. And I thought, you know, he should not be allowed to talk about his own work, right? Because he undersells it. So first of all, I mean, why do we continue to ask artists to talk about their work? And why is it that they're often not the people best suited to discuss their work? Well, I, there's a painter named Baltus who was very important to us in graduate school, people who are trying to paint figuratively, because he was painting figuratively all the way through modernist French experimentation. Picasso appreciated his work, bought his work, and he was interviewed, well, not interviewed, he was asked, he was having a show somewhere, and they sent a telegram saying, could you please explicate your work? And he wrote back and said, Baltus is a painter about whom nothing is known. Now let us look at the paintings. And I thought that was tremendous. That's wonderful. He's right. The paintings speak for themselves. Later, he started talking and giving interviews, and I wished he'd shut up and stuck to his gun because he sounded ridiculous. He sounded sort of pompous and self-important, and he wasn't really talking about the paintings. He was talking about himself and sort of narcissistically digressing about his own biography. And as to whether artists are capable or interested in talking about their work, you can't shut painters up, apparently. My wife thinks. The painters that I know, she says, you guys just talk in ways that writers never talk. And we spent time in Key West, and there were a lot of heavy-hitting writers, Annie Diller, Bob Stone, any number of well-known writers, and they never talked about each other's work or their own. 
at parties, ever. They were there and supportive of each other because they knew what they were up against and that they'd spent all day, you know, sweating over the typewriter or whatever. But at a party, no, they would never talk. Whereas if I see a painter friend, again, you can't shut us up. There's a story in the book about my friend David Carboni and I went to Cleveland, I guess it was, to see a show of Lenin Brothers. And after talking and standing in front of a painting, I don't know, for 40 minutes, a guard came over, a very sweet woman said, can I ask you gentlemen who you are? And we said, well, we're painters. He said, I thought so. I've never seen anybody look at a painting for so long and talk about it so much. So there are verbal, maybe it's because you're standing in front of a canvas all day, unless you have a model, you're alone. It's a very solitary act. And maybe when you see another painter who speaks the same language, you're off and running and it's a joy to do that. But that may not be true of other painters. And for all I know, it's only my friends that I talk to. Now in the book, you talk a bit about your parents and your childhood and your father was not someone who was a big supporter of the arts, didn't really see the relevance of the arts. And so for people who are not raised in a household where they are exposed to the arts, how do they come to discover the arts? That's a very good question. I think I have a friend who's Parents are both painters, and he's out-of-the-box, wonderful painter. He's very young, but boy, he's off like a comet. That helps. The genetic, you know, and also the, his whole life was surrounded by his parents painting in the living room. I mean, the whole house was a studio. That's one thing. I think in a funny way, the fact that my father was so contemptuous of the arts might have helped in rebelling against that. And also having some, my grandmother was a painter, apparently, or one of my grandmothers, and that may have been genetically in there somewhere. And so it became more and more rewarding to pursue that, and partly in rebellion. But then also my brother's scientist. He had garnered all the my father's approval for being a physicist. So I wasn't going to compete in that field, and I had no gift for it. So painting, and after all this drawing, came naturally. Well, you talk about how artists go to museums like bees go to the beehive, right? They go in hungry, ravenous, and start consuming stuff. But there's also the way in which artists approach the world, right? So part of it is approaching other art, but doesn't your interaction with art affect the way you interact with, say, nature and what you see? I remember I took a couple painting classes when I was in school and the instructors there, I mean, this was, I think the biggest impact that they had on me was that I couldn't look at a tree the same way, or I couldn't look at a building the same way, or I couldn't look at a torso the same way after doing some painting. And so do you go into museums like a bee into the beehive, or do you kind of go into the world, right? Well, they bleed into each other. I, when, the, when the Barnes collection used to be in Marion out in the countryside, out in the suburbs, one time I was there all day, and there are 40, at least 40 Cezannes there. And I came out, and there were trees. It's now in the center of the city. But back then, there were these huge trees. And for about 10 minutes, they looked. I was looking through Cezanne's eyes. I could see those trees as Cezanne's. It only lasted 10 minutes, and I wish it had lasted longer. But it was. I had become so immersed in his viewpoint. It does bleed over. I went to Bryce Canyon, and it was one of the best art experiences I've ever had. Because of the sedimentary rock, things melted away at different levels. There are heads, torsos, lower bodies, hundreds of them. And you're at a distance, so you, it looks as if you're looking, for, looking at crowds of people or even individual groups of people. 
And so you begin to see that that does carry over. And I talk in the book about seeing a torcola in the, the Venetian orlock that's on the gondola under construction in a workshop. And it was as beautiful as any sculpture I'd ever seen. Things aren't just in museums. It does become a joy elsewhere. Uh, it expands. But when you do go into a museum, I think a lot of people don't quite know how to enjoy museums. Me personally, I get very intimidated if I go to a place like the Louvre or the Met. You know, I like the Frick. I like the Barnes. I like these places. They're a little bit more manageable. And so when you go into these museums, how do you decide what it is that you're going to enjoy? What are you going to learn from? Do you go in with a specific agenda, a specific mission? Do you say, okay, I'm going to go into the Prado and I'm going to go find the Goyas and I'm going to go check them out? Or do you kind of go in there and have some serendipitous encounters? I think more of the latter. What I usually do is go in and look at the entire collection and then see what I want to spend more time with. The National Gallery in London, where we just visited, it used to be a, like the Frick. It used to be very condensed. And then downstairs were the what they considered the also-rans. And now they're all mixed together. And my wife, the first time we went 20 years ago, had that experience of everything was great. Everything was the best of the best of the best. And it was very condensed. She was more taken aback now. They had, I think, in my memory, one Canaletto, which is a brilliant stonemason's yard. Gorgeous, gorgeous painting. And back in the day, that was the only Canaletto. Now they are everything they have. So say seven or eight Canalettos. And she thought, well, they're all the same. You know, she doesn't necessarily look at them the way I do. I was happy as a clam. I could look at Canalettos all day. But it's obviously a different taste. I only started really looking at sculpture when I started doing sculpture. Because it necessitates, as I said, moving around, circulating, getting all the views and letting them here in your mind that was unknown to me before i started doing it myself and realized the problems involved and they're very real problems and that's part of what makes it interesting to me is that they're so difficult to do well no, look if someone like you isn't really noticing sculpture until you start sculpting <laughs> you know and you're you're a painter this means that the typical citizen isn't really noticing anything what does it mean to be an educated citizen. I mean, you quote John Hollander and this notion that there is such a thing as sort of an educated citizen with some exposure to the humanities. I mean, if someone wants to be sort of a, an educated citizen, what kind of grounding do they need in the arts? I mean, should they simply be trained to encounter it in a particular way or should they also dabble in the production of art in order to better understand it? Well, the quote from John was to that effect, that back in the 1800s, everyone would do a few watercolors, everyone would play a little bit on the piano, everyone would write letters to each other in verse. So when they saw something that was tremendously above their own level, they would appreciate it more than we could. Now, he said, we're intimidated. As soon as we see something that looks like a poem, we think we're unqualified to deal with it. When I was in London, I made a point of seeing a, a World War I monument, a very obscure, well, now very obscure artist named Charles Sargent Jagger, no relation to Mick, did. And to me, it was both an art experience and a historical experience, because I was studying to be an historian when I was in Colombia. And World War I always, I could almost not read about it because it was so ghastly and depressing. This monument was the most moving thing I'd seen as a monument to anything. And it was actually very simple. There were four bronze, nine-foot-high soldiers around a base of a one-third scale howitzer. 
this is a memorial for the lost the 50,000 people killed in the artillery, which is what's going on in Ukraine now. And this memorial, I felt the way someone who knew something about World War I would feel. In other words, I didn't start formally analyzing his sculpture as sculpture. I took it in as an experience of tragedy and of loss. I felt this is ideally, that that is his ideal audience. And apparently it was very popular with the men who had served in the artillery in World War I because it spoke to them. It isn't all gesturing and dramatic swords in the air. It's men standing quietly with their legs spread and then a dead soldier at eye level, at, which was very controversial at the time. And I thought, only secondarily am I seeing as a sculptor how he managed to do this. And that's, it seems to me that's maybe more the way someone coming upon that monument, especially if their grandfather died in the First World War, might, if they know something about the war and something about its horrors, this magnificent sculpture in Hyde Park could speak to them. So they do need some preparation. They need to know, I know young people who don't know that there was a Vietnam War. They think it was like the Trojan War. That was my whole life experience. So on some level, it helps to know that there was a, this horrible war in the trenches for four years where millions of people died. It makes it much more moving, it, although it's still a powerful monument. It does behoove us, I think, to know our own history, to know something, to know things that make life richer. So I don't know how to do that. I'm not sure schools are, you know, they're doing away with humanities departments. It's all STEM. And that's a loss, it seems to me, because you're not even going to know what World War I was if you don't have some history, some reading of history. And that's tragic. And, and also, selfishly speaking, it means probably whatever I do is less accessible. The more it's dependent on some immersion in the traditions of art, Western art especially, and in history and in myth. But I can't control that. I can write a book and hope that a few people read it, but I can't educate a generation of people to see the way I see, or nor should they necessarily. Well, do you think people are intimidated? I mean, people don't say, I'm not going to learn math because I'm never going to be Einstein. But people might say, I'm not going to learn drawing because I'm never going to be any good at it. Do you think people are intimidated because they're continuously exposed to works of great art? Just, you know, it's available, it's out there. Is there a level of intimidation that deters people? Yes. Well, again, I sort of vowed not to talk about the current art world, but I think there's a tremendous amount of intimidation, or until recently, there was a tremendous amount of intimidation there. There's a writer who wrote a book called Why Are Our Paintings Puzzles? And the gist of it is, why are we making these things as if they're codes that are so difficult to read? He also wrote a book called Paintings and Tears that talk about that book, the painting, the Bellini that we were talking about earlier. And he wrote to art historians and said, when I was young, the author was young, I cried in front of that painting. And now I don't because I became educated like the Thoreau with learning the Latin names. I study it. I appreciate it. I analyze it. I talk about it. I teach it. But I don't cry in front. And intimidation and crying are the flip side of each other. You're never going to cry if you're feeling intimidated by something. It seems to me it's worth thinking about the, the reader or the viewer or the participant as to not making something into a quiz, not making something into a Rebus puzzle. That might interest some people. I mean, we have friends who do puzzles out of the New York Times. We don't. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the way that art history is taught 
once was taught by just a series of slides with dates and names. And now I think it's sometimes it's taught with more of a critical agenda. But how should it be taught? What kind of seeing skills should be practiced? Can one actually aspire to see like an artist if one is not an artist? Well, that's interesting. I have friends who taught in Belgium on a Fulbright. And at first, having taught here in the States, they were contemptuous of the fact that the teachers there gave their students an overview of American literature. It was like a conceptual temporal map of where things fit in. And they thought, well, that's not the way we do it in the States. We specialize almost immediately and start talking about very specific We'll get to the whole by getting through these small portals. And after a while, they realized, actually, it helps tremendously to have this overview, to have this big picture. And I think the same is true of art, that if you know roughly when the early Renaissance was and what paintings from that period tend to look like, as opposed to, say, Impressionist paintings, they're not, you know, they're very different. And there's a beauty to be found And it's not about categorizing or passing a test and saying, aha, I see that's from 1450. It does help to have a big picture of where things fit in. So it's not to use a puzzle imagery, but it it helps to know when Jericho lived right after the French Revolution and Napoleon. It helps to know these things. But it seems to me the way I did it was to gradually put this picture together by driving around with a Fred Hart's book on Renaissance and looking at everything and trying to match it up with having this temporal map. And it worked. I mean, I know when I can look at a painting, I can go to it and it amuses my wife. I can go to a museum and say, Angelico, give the date. It's not a showing off. It's that you, these are old friends who you know so well. I don't know because I've done this. I don't know what it's like to not have that at your back. I don't know what it feels like. All I can say is, for instance, having listened to the radio and listened to classical music all my life, I know roughly when something was written, even if I don't know who it was by, but I don't read the biographies of Bach, who I admire tremendously. I don't speak German, so I don't know what the cantata, what they're singing. So that's a huge loss on my part. It's analogous to somebody going to a museum and and not really knowing that that's Apollo and Daphne, but they're seeing this sculpture, as it turns out, by Bernini, where life-size figures a male is chasing a woman who's turning into a laurel tree and her fingers in marble are becoming leaves. And you look at it and whether you know the Apollo and Daphne story or not, are going to be mind blown that anybody could do this. It's just, and actually Michelangelo would have hated it because he said a good sculpture ought to be able to roll down a hill and it will maintain its integrity. Well, the Bernini would be thousands of chunks and shards. It would be nothing. And he would have thought that meant it wasn't true sculpture. These people all had very strong opinions. Well, some people talk about the anxiety of influence. And I think in your book, you said that we shouldn't experience anxiety of influence. We should experience joy of influence. So you spent a lot of time looking at your predecessors. And so how come when you spend time studying your predecessors, this serves as fertilizer for your work rather than asphyxiating your creativity. Is that normal for artists or is the kind of anxiety of influence more normal? I can't speak for other artists, but I think there were creepy paintings done. I can't remember where, but in a museum and I can't remember where the painters were obviously trying to learn from Veronese, but it was men in tights. They had the same costumes and the same level, well, an imitative level of skill, but they just didn't work. 
they were not learning from the structure of the Veronese or from the joy of the Veronese. They were kind of dutiful borrowings of technique. And for me, technique is not a terribly positive word. It smacks of, you know, stand oil and pigment and carving tools and things that are necessary, but not the essence. When I talk about structure, I'm thinking about, for instance, in one of the essays, there are two kinds of sculpture. Rodin's sculpture, which is almost like Rubens' axial freedom, and then this German who basically endorsed planar thinking in sculpture. So you started with a block and you worked back from the face and you were contained on Hildebrand, and they hated each other's work for good reason. And actually, Rodin, I find much more interesting. But that kind of thinking leads to structural innovation, I think, rather than imitative borrowing or copying. And it's certainly not appropriation, which came to mean making fun of this earlier art as if we're somehow superior to it. It's as if you're trashing something magnificent because of your either your anxiety over the influence or your feeling of superiority, both of which are tedious. So what I'm advocating for in this book is looking beneath the surface of even touch. I don't talk about facture, but try to stress how you read art, how a sculpture carries your eye around, how a painting guides your eye through into depth and then back out again. Things like that are timeless, it seems to me. They can be applied now just as well as they were applied in the Elgin Marbles or Frangelico or Pontormo, who's a major favorite of mine. A hero of mine is Pontormo, who lived in the painted productively in the 1530s, and he looks modern to my eyes. Modern meaning he's very aware of the picture plane. He's simplifying forms dramatically. You can use that. You can steal from that. You can apply that as a way of thinking. You can apply it to the things that obsess you, that interest you. So right now I'm conceiving of paintings based in Ukraine because I'm sort of obsessed with what's going on there. But I can use their language, but not their literal imagery. Or the look of the Veronese is not what I'm interested in. It's spatial thinking that's so clear on his part, so beautiful. Now, when you look at the murals that you've done, do you ever imagine what will happen if the, when those murals get removed from their current locations? And I know what will happen. They'll be destroyed. They won't survive. They're glued to the wall on canvas. And if they tried to take them off, they would be in the garbage heap. So I'm hoping they stay there. I certainly hope they're considered a, a contribution to Mr. Jefferson's legacy. I know he's there are problems with Mr. Jefferson, problems with everything these days. But I'm hoping a student came by when I was working on the murals in Kabul. She was Asian. And she said, how long will these be here? And I said, 800 years. Because <laughs> I was thinking, well, Giotto's are 800 years old. Let's hope that we're in the same company. I don't know how long they'll last. I don't know how long anything will last. I don't know how long... I've had murals taken down, and they haven't survived, really. It's a very strange culture. In Europe, it's illegal to destroy artwork, which creates its own problems. There are warehouses full of stuff that calls itself art. But I, I sort of wish on some level there were something here and that was analogous so that you couldn't just cut down trees and destroy art at whim. Well, Lincoln, thanks so much for joining me. Your book is called Seeing Like an Artist. Check it out. There's also some other writing in some journals. And also check out the work, check out the art. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. 
To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.